Well, it is good to have Peter and Sonia and the family, children, join us for worship. Peter, I thank God for you. pray for you and your family often. It is a privilege that you, we can worship our God together. I'll tell you, church, uh, when I was with um, them uh, last year, uh, I really experienced the grace of God through Peter's life, ministry, and example. Just standing next to him, I felt my soul just so strengthened in my faith, in my life, and so it is a great privilege to have him come and join us for four days at our retreat, retreat together. It's going to be just a veritable feast of worship and God's word and fellowship. So look forward to having all of you guys there and worship our God together. Just one quick announcement our, concerning our retreat. It is when we have our baptism service, an outward sign of a renewed inward condition that one has placed their trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you have recently professed faith and have not been baptized, we ask you to talk to Mr. Tom Furco, our leader of our membership ministry. Uh, if you desire to be baptized, we'll uh, have our baptism service at our next retreat. Well, we're back in our study in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We've taken a two-week break. We're back in our study of this passage, 27 through 43. We will focus our attention on verses 41 and 41 through 43. But before we do that, because it has been a few weeks, let's do a, just a brief review on our study on the glory of God. Our study on the glory of God based upon this section of Scripture. The glory of God is definitely the main and central theme of this section. Verse 27 and 28 tells us, that the reason for our Lord going to the cross is the glory. It's for the glory of God, glory of God's name. He said, almost speaking to himself, Now my soul is troubled. It is agitated. What shall I say? Shall I pray to God my Father, save me from this hour? Christ dreaded becoming um, condemned by the sight of God having the curse of sin being placed upon him, being separated in his relationship with God the Father. So he contemplated, shall I pray that prayer, Father, save me from this hour? And he says, no, I shall not. It is for this very reason, verse 27, I came to this hour, and then he makes that exclamation. He declares the purpose of him going to the cross, Father, glorify your name. That verse tells us that Jesus died for God, that His motivation for going to the cross, His supreme, utmost motivation was that God's name might be glorified. Our second study from verse 28 revealed God's reply to Christ's declaration. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That tells us that God Himself, He's not an idolater that He has no other gods before Him, that God is passionate for His own glory, that God does all things for Himself. And He tells us that God's motivation for all things is also for His own glory. And then Christ responds, verse 32, He says, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. All men here is all kinds of men the people that asked the question that started this whole dialogue were Greeks, Greek proselytes, Greek converts to Judaism. 
And so as he sees these Greek Gentiles, and as he sees the Jewish people that are worshipping God in the temple, Christ says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to myself, meaning he will spread God's glory, spread the fame of God's name throughout the world, that all nations might glorify God. So we discovered then that as followers of Christ, our desires must be the same. That our, our profession, our passion for God's glory is vindicated by missions. That it's not enough for us to say we live for God's glory. If we truly live for God's glory, then it must, be, it must produce a life that is committed to evangelism and missions. Seeking that men from every tribe, tongue, and nation glorify God. Our fourth study was from verses 37 through 41. And there, that tells us the biblical reason, the theological reason why these people rejected Christ. Verse 37, even after Christ performed all these miraculous signs, He revealed His glory to these men. They still would not believe in Him. There was an unwillingness on the part of a majority of people to trust in Jesus Christ. But verse 39 tells us, not only they would not believe, they could not believe in Christ. Because Isaiah had prophesied, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts, that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Their rejection of Christ was promised in the Scriptures, God prophesied that His people reject the Anointed One, reject the Messiah. And God confirms, therefore, that whether by the salvation of the elect or the rejection of the unelect, God's glory stands firm. The reason men will not believe in Christ, cannot believe, is according to the sovereign will of God. Therefore, sinful man cannot rob God of His glory. The world cannot frustrate the plans of God. Regardless, God's glory stands firm. Well, that was our fourth study. Our fifth study, three weeks ago, told us the practical reason why these men rejected Christ. Verses 37 through 41 taught us the biblical theological reason. 42 and 43 tells us the plain and practical reason for their rejection. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These two verses tell us that there are two competing glories in the world. Glory of God and the glory of man. That all men have two options. They'll either fear God or they will fear man. If the glory of God is not your singular passion in life, the Bible is clear that you will forever be enslaved to the fear of man. This is the the reason why they did not trust in Christ. Verse 42 Many in the crowds believed in Christ. Even the leaders, these are religious leaders of Israel, they believed in the claims of Christ. 
They saw the miracles. They heard His teaching. And in their hearts, they trusted. They believed that He was the Messiah, the Anointed One. But they did not confess their faith. They did not publicly acknowledge their faith in Christ. Why? Because of the fear of the Pharisees. These men were cowards. They were constrained by the fear of man. They were afraid that they would be cast out of the synagogue. Made outcast of society. Shunned by their religious system, their religious culture. John here tells us the real practical reason for their rejection. They were unwilling to break with their colleagues. They would rather have Jesus be murdered than give up their positions of prestige and honor. And verse 43 tells us that's the the other side of the coin, the flip side. On one side there is the fear of man. On the other side is the love of praise of man. The glory of man that this world gives. And they love the glory of this world more than the glory of God. The praise that is rooted in popularity and success, living up to man's expectations and goals, these things had ensnared them and caused them to reject Christ. Caused them to go against their faith, go against their conscience. John tells us plainly the prevailing motive in the minds of these cowardly Jews They loved above everything to be well thought of by their fellow men. They thought more of having the good opinion of man than the praise of God. They could not bear the idea of being ridiculed, of being laughed at, being reviled or persecuted. They loved the praise. They loved the attention. They loved the limelight that these authorities gave them. They feared rejection by men more than the rejection of God. That's why Christ said in John 5:44, "How can you believe? How can you believe if you accept praise, if you seek praise, if you pursue praise from one another, and yet you make no effort to obtain praise from God? This uh, fear of man that is common to all. The seeking after the praise of man that is common to all has an insidious, disastrous consequence. This caused them to reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, I never understood Revelation 21, verse 8, until I studied John 12. In Revelation 21, verse 8, God records all the kinds of people that are cast away in hell for eternity. And He describes them as, as practicing magic arts, idolaters, sexually immoral, the unbelieving murderers. But the first on the list is cowards. Right? The first ones to enter into hell. The greatest percentage of people entering into hell, they're labeled cowards. I never understood that. Well, here's the reason why. For most people, the reason for their rejection of Christ boils down to this, is that they are cowardly. They know this is true. They know the Word of God. They know Christ is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, a, a ransom, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. And 
yet the reason they refuse to receive him, refuse to believe in him, is because they're cowardly. Or poor, pathetic souls, because they sought after the approval of men, they have lost everything. And as we learned three weeks ago, we can easily point our fingers at these Jewish leaders and, said, and say, wow, look at these guys, so sad. How can they be so ensnared by fear of man? Well, we must remember that we are not immune to this evil. That all of us here, myself included, with varying degrees, are ensnared to the same sin. We are not just spectators to this disease, to this evil, to this sin. All of us here are participants. We are all infected by this disease of fearing men. You know, there are different terminologies. And when we're teenagers, it's called peer pressure. When we're older, it's called people-pleasing. Psychologists call it codependency. Or whatever we call it. The Bible calls it the fear of man. And before all of us, there are two competing glories, two options. Either we will fear God, or we will fear man. Puritan pastor John Flavel said this, These two are our only options. If men will not fear God, they shall fear men. It is a dreadful punishment for God to deliver a man up into the hands of his own fears. I think there is scarce a greater torment to be found in the world than for a man to be his own tormentor, and his mind an instrument of torture to his own body. What a dismal life they live when they fear man. They have no peace by day, no rest by night. The days of such, such men are terrible days. They wish for the night, hoping it may give them some rest. But their fears go to bed with them. Their hearts pant and meditate terror. And then it is they again. End quote. Pastor Wayne Mack said, a man who is enslaved to the fear of man will do anything. History has proven that statement to be true. Fear is a powerful emotion. Fear of man will prevent you from doing the things you would normally do. It would cause you to do things you wouldn't normally do. Fear has caused proud men to beg, strong men to cry, loving men to hate, and peaceful men to be filled with fury. Like a slave master... Fear is controlling, and sadly, many Christians are controlled by this fear of man, and as a result, they are spiritually crippled, end quote. We see this even in the life of a king. We see the, the disastrous, all overwhelming power, influence of fear of man in King Saul's life. In 1 Samuel 15, he goes against the clear commands of God through the prophet Samuel. He, sacrifice, he, he keeps uh, the remnants of the Philistine army rather than sacrificing it to God. And this king, this almighty warrior, he confesses the reason he rejected Christ's command was because he was afraid of the people and therefore he gave in to them. He was rejected by God as the king of Israel because he feared men more than he feared God. 
fear of man is indeed a slave master. The effects on a man, on a person in this life, and also potentially in eternity, is terrible. That was our study three weeks ago. For our remaining time, I want to turn our attention to the opposite of fearing man. Turn our attention to the marks and the joy of fearing God. For our remaining time, we want to look at the joys, the benefits, the privileges of fearing God. Now, what does it mean to fear God? It is important that we have a right understanding of fearing God. It is not the idea of fear as a mere emotion. We have that show on TV, Fear Factor. And fear is all about eating roaches, uh, cow brains and pig intestines and fear of water and fire and heights and how somehow overcoming that makes you uh, someone who overcomes fear. That's not the idea of fear of God. We're not to approach God like <laughs> have to do something horrible or you know, be suspended you know, 20 feet in the air or or swim, swim a long distance. You know, Wayne Max really helpful, and, and, and Ed Welch as well, is what they, how they define fear of God. Fearing God is a heart attitude. It's not merely an emotion. Fearing God is, an heart, is a heart attitude of worshipful submission unto Him. It is to see God as He is, in the fullness of His attributes. It is to understand that God is a God of love, but also to understand that God is a thrice holy God. A God who is so holy that He sent His Son to die a most horrific death. It is a God who is so holy that He forsook His own Son whom He loved on the cross and abandoned Him because of His utter hatred towards sin. It is a reverential awe for God. God who is holy, sovereign, righteous, it is coming to face to face with His holiness. It is being overwhelmed and struck, struck with the sheer glory of His being. Fearing God is not just an emotion. It is not just an attitude. It means to live a God-centered life in which our whole lives revolve around God, not ourselves. It means to take God seriously. It means to take Him as He is, not superficially. Oh, with that said, we must point out, and it saddens me to say this, that this concept, this idea of fearing God, is not at all popular in Christianity today. In fact, this term of fear of God has virtually vanished from the Christian landscape in America. In the churches today, God has become a buddy, a pal, an old friend who is always there for us. He has become our cosmic Santa Claus. He has become almost a boyfriend or a girlfriend figure. Right? And when I was preaching in another church months ago, one of the songs they sang was, Dance With Me. And one of the choruses was, I want to be romanced by the king of the ages. I, mean, I couldn't sing that song. I couldn't believe these guys were singing this song. I mean, what is our conception of God when we ask God to dance with us, to romance us? 
He has become sanitized to fit our own idolatrous idea, conception of Him, rather than to see God as He is. The modern church's God is so user-friendly, so sanitized, that fear of such a God is not required, it's nor warranted. With every downward step our thoughts of God have taken, we have in like measure, we have lost the holy reverence for Him. It is reflected in our worship, reflected in our prayer, our lack thereof, reflected in our casual approach to Christianity. Let me read to you Steve Lawson, Pastor Lawson. This is what he wrote in one of his books. Quote, Step into the average church these days and you will likely see that the services are designed more to remove the fear of God than to promote it. It seems that everything today, everything today is geared to make man comfortable but not convicted, amused, but not in awe. In our efforts to make seekers more at ease in church, we have downplayed the reverential awe we should feel in the presence of Almighty God. We have so emphasized the horizontal aspect of our relationship, our intimacy and closeness with Him, that the vertical aspect, our reverence, awe and fear toward Him, has been almost totally neglected sit under many of the sermons being preached, listen to many of the choruses being sung, and read many of the books that are being written, and you will see that there is, for the most part, little of a high view of God being spoken, sung, or read about. As a result, there is very little that would instill in hearts a healthy, holy fear of God. We live in a day in which a God is made in our image. And that has swept into our churches like a flood. And with it has come an unhealthy casualness toward God that borders often on blasphemy. End quote. David Wells, in his book, Whatever Happened to the Truth, he wrote, The modern church has turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for ourselves, for our satisfaction, not because we have learned to think of Him in this way through Christ, but because we have learned to think of Him in this way through the marketeers, through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. So as we come into the church... We have brought this mindset as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into the God who is at our mercy. If the sunshine of His benign grace fails to warm us as we expect, if He fails to shower us with prosperity and success, we will find ourselves, we find ourselves unable to believe and worship Him anymore. That is why for so many of us in the Western church, this idea of fearing God is a foreign concept. It is absent. It is absent. It is an absent ideal in the Western church. Those who propose that we are not to fear God, they're wrong. They're in error. They're terribly mistaken. It is an utterly unbiblical perspective. It is an indefensible idea that we are not to fear God. I mean, Scripture is replete on clear commands from God for us to fear Him. Deuteronomy 5.29 is what God says, 
Oh, that their hearts will be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2, Your children and their children may fear the Lord. God wants intergenerational fear. It is not enough for one generation to fear God. God wants our children and our grandchildren to fear and reverence the Holy God of Israel. Deuteronomy 6.13, direct command, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him only. Deuteronomy 10.12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does He ask of us? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. In fact, the fear of God is so central to the worship of God that if we are not reverencing God, if we're not, if our hearts are not fearing the Lord, we are not worshiping the God of the Bible. We are practicing idolatry. We are worshiping ourselves. Psalm 2.11 Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Psalm 33.8 Not just Israel. God says all nations, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere Him. Jeremiah 5.22 I love that. God says, Should you not fear Me? It's a rhetorical question. Should you not fear Me? Declares the Lord. Should you not tremble in My presence? And he gives a reason. I made the sand a boundary for the sea. You know, a tide comes in, high tide, low tide. But I said it. Who set that boundary where it will go no more? I did it. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. I, the sovereign one, have declared it. Therefore, should you not fear me? Luke twelve five. This is what Christ says. He says, yeah, Satan is powerful. Devil, yeah, he has the authority and the power over this. He's the God of this age. He has the authority to, to, to oppress and to hinder and even kill the body. But Christ says, do not fear the one who has authority of the body and can do no more. Christ says, I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him, speaking of God. Acts 9.31, the New Testament church. The church was strengthened, they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in number. How? Because it was living in the fear of the Lord. That was what they breathed. That was, they were surrounded, they were encompassed. Their lifestyle was one of fearing God. 1 Peter 2.17 Peter says, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. In fact, fearing God is something that we never outgrow. You know, we might outgrow the fear of roller coasters. You know, we might outgrow fear of our parents. I, I haven't yet, but one day I will. Right, we might outgrow certain, you know, sleeping in the dark. But fear of God, I'm talking about my daughter, not me, right? <laughs> The fear of God is something we never outgrow, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Here is Solomon at the end of his life. And he says, All has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here is the end. Fear God and keep His commandments. Something we never outgrow. 
You know, First John 4.18 is it's misinterpreted by too many people. First John 4.18, people say, There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Hey James, First John 4.18, we're not to fear God because perfect love drives out fear. Okay, you know, most important rule in interpreting a verse in the Bible is context. Context, context, context. Uh, I read, up, read about an Olympian. She was doing some Olympic, and she won a gold medal years ago, and, and it was in an illustration, and she said, you know, what did you think right before you did that you know, uh, performance? And she said, I said to myself, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And I was like, oh no, not that verse. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, mean, I understand what you're saying, but that's the wrong interpretation. Paul's talking about contentment, not about you know, athletic achievement. Wrong interpretation, wrong application. Well, likewise, 1 John 4.17 is talking about the day of judgment. John says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence. When? On the day of judgment. We won't fear being condemned, being cast out, being separated from God forever before the day of judgment. We don't have such fear because we are believers. We have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what drives our obedience today is not the fear of punishment, Romans 8.1. No, what drives our motivation to serve Him is love. That's what John is talking about. Not about we're not to fear God. In fact, the lack of fearing God is the distinguishing mark of the unrighteous. Right? A clear fruit of those who are wicked, who are evil, who are not Christians, is that they do not fear God. Romans 3.18 There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he is quoting Psalm 36.1 as believers, it is not an option. Fear of God is an absolute requirement. It is a necessity. And I'll tell you people, I'll tell you my brothers and sisters, it is our joy to fear God. It is our privilege. It is our delight. Let me just close our remaining time. Let me close with six benefits of fearing God. Six benefits. Number one, it gives us wisdom. It gives us understanding. It gives us insight. Now some of you are reading the scriptures and you don't see change in your life. Some of you are studying the Bible, but there is no fruit being produced in your life. It is not giving you wisdom. It is not changing you. It's not causing you to make right decisions. Well, it might be because you're reading the Bible without fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 Solomon says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. It gives him humility which will produce honor. In fact, Psalm 25.14 tells us that the fear of God illumines our minds to understand the Word of God. <coughs> Psalm 25.14 The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. Give the Word of God to those who fear God. First benefit. Second benefit is that it aids in our obedience. When we struggle to obey, 
when our hearts are rebellious, our hearts refuse to follow God's precepts, when our depravity comes out, and the stubbornness of our souls refuses to acknowledge the authority of Christ and follow His commands, a healthy dose of fear of God buffets that and helps us to obey. Genesis 22:12. God said to Abraham, Do not lay a hand on the boy, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. How was Abraham able to lay his son Isaac on the altar, raise his knife, determined to strike him dead because it was God's command? Because Abraham feared the loss of his son. Any parent would understand that. But Abraham feared more the loss of his God. Hebrews 11.7 For years Noah built an ark in the desert. How was he able to do that? He said he built the ark with holy fear. With holy fear. Thirdly, fear of God protects us from sin and temptation. Fear of God protects us from sin and temptation. I love this. This is one of our family verses. Proverbs 23.17 Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. It's so easy for in our hearts to envy those living in this world, their comforts, their lifestyle, their ease. What protects us from that? The fear of God. Number four, this is the horizontal benefit. You fear God, God commands us to praise you. God commands us to honor those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive, but beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears God is to be praised. In the life of the church, we are to praise those whose lifestyle reveals that they fear God more than man. Number The fifth reason God is glorified. God is pleased by those who fear Him. Psalm 147.11 The Lord delights in those who fear Him. And now the final benefit of fearing God. The sixth and final. And I believe this is the greatest benefit of fearing God. It is this. It is the one proven antidote for the fear of man. The one sure cure for the disease of fearing man. It's to fear God. You say today, James, yeah, you know, I struggle with fear of man. I struggle with peer pressure. I struggle with fellowship because of what others might think of me. Right? The clothes I wear, the things I say, the hot preferences that I have, they're all constrained by the fear of man. I want to evangelize to my family, to my friends, to my co-workers. But fear of man. Right? I want to live for Christ but I want to please man. The cure is not to stop fearing man. The cure is to start fearing God. It sets us free from the bondage of fearing man. Acts 5.29 Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than man. Psalm 27.1-2-3 David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
when evil men advance me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then, I will be confident. Pastor Hugh Black said, The fear of God kills all other fears. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It is this fear, the fear of God, grants us the courage to serve and follow Christ. Therefore, we have something important to learn from these men, these Jewish leaders of John 12. We learn from their negative example the dangers, the devastating consequences of fearing man. It is a snare, potentially leading someone to deny Christ. All the more, we are and we must fear God. We must fear the Lord. There is really an insight to the occupational hazard of spiritual leadership, religious leadership. Um, the man most prone to fear of man is the pastor of the church. Right? If you're a newcomer, really you don't have any fear of man concerning the church. Right? If you're a young member, right, for children here, I don't have fear of man, I don't really care. Right? They'll fall asleep on me, no problem. Right? <laughs> They'll just you know, fiddle and they don't care. Right? But it's the pastors, the elders, spiritual leaders are most vulnerable to the fear of man. And we see that here. These are religious leaders of Israel and yet they're ensnared by the opinions of people. Above all men, spiritual leaders must be men who fear God above all. You know, I'm encouraged by examples in church history. Reminded of a man named Athanasius, a bishop of Alexandria. He vehemently opposed the teachings of a man named Arius. Arius was what you call modern day Jehovah's Witness, modern day LDS, Latter day Saint. He believed that Jesus Christ was a created being, he was not God in flesh. He was a, he was a sub- subservient being created by God, and he was not God in flesh. Athanasius opposed this heretical doctrine. He was exiled from the country, his country, five times. He lived among Egyptian monks in the wilderness for two years while he was in exile. Finally, he was summoned before the emperor who demanded that he recant. He demanded he stop opposing Arius. The emperor rebuked him and told him, do you not realize that the whole world is against you, Athanasius? You're the only one. Everybody is against you. Athanasius quickly replied, then I am against the world then I am against the world. It was the church's first test of heresy and this one man against the current stood firm and led the church to orthodoxy. On his tombstone it was engraved Contra Mundum, Latin for against the world. Against the world. Such devotion is needed today by spiritual leaders. Philip Brooks in his 1877 Yale lecture said, Courage is the indispensable prerequisite for any true ministry. If you are afraid of men and a slave to their opinions, 
Go and do something else. Go and make shoes to fit them. Go and paint pictures which you know are bad, but which will suit their bad taste. But do not keep on all your life preaching sermons which shall not say what God sent you to declare, but what they hire you to say. Be courageous. The the residing presider over John Knox's funeral said of him, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. Knowing the insidious, disastrous consequences of fearing man, knowing the benefits of fearing God, May God liberate the elders, the leaders, and member stone, members of Cornerstone from the fear of man. May God liberate us from that. And may God create and instill in us a deep and abiding fear of God. This is part two. Part three is next week. Next week it's all application. All right, 45 minutes of application next week. Let's pray. God, we do confess that the lack of prayer in our lives, the lack of zeal for the gospel, our lack of commitment to missions, our hesitancy to be bold and to herald the gospel of Christ, that Lord is, that, that, that you are our Lord, is simply this in our hearts. To varying degrees, we are cowards. We fear men. We fear their opinions. We seek the praise of this world rather than the praise of you. Lord, that we would confess like the apostles that we must obey God rather than men. Lord, that we would rejoice that we suffer, that we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Lord, that you were raised in cornerstone only almost a, a militant a radical mindset to please you above all. That our, our joy is that that our heart will be that, that eternal unveiling on that judgment day when you will expose the thoughts and the motivations of all believers. Lord, we will stand before you that day and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Lord, may that be our heart cry knowing the slavery of fearing man at the same time knowing the joys the delight the benefits of fearing you Lord that you would raise such people such believers in our church in Jesus name Amen